All right. Well, we are continuing on in our study of the book of 2 Corinthians. And I would ask if you would be so kind as to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to read the entire chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'll begin at verse 1. And as you are able, please stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving uh, to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. You may be seated. You might remember uh, last week, we, as we looked in chapter 3, we finished up taking a look at the, the glory of the Lord, this glorious ministry that was given, uh, that was done by the Holy Spirit and entrusted to the Apostle Paul, <clears throat> and noting that this ministry ends up in glorifying God and edifying others as the veil drops away and Jesus Christ is beheld and hearts and lives are truly changed. And that is what Paul is referring to in chapter 1 of verse of uh, sorry, chapter chapter 4 and verse 1 where he says therefore referring back to that having this ministry by the mercy of God we do not lose heart. And you'll notice down in verse 16 also that phrase we do not lose heart is repeated and you will hear that phrase over and over again this morning as we we think about not losing heart 
in the ministry, in the gospel ministry. It is a great treasure. And yet it can be very easy to become discouraged and to lose heart when things don't go the way that you would like them to go. When, when uh, people resist you, when you find opposition or affliction or even, you know, uh, affliction within our own bodies and so on, the weakness that comes upon us with age or infirmity or illness, when the things that we used to be able to do, we can't do so much anymore, it can be certainly discouraging. But I want you to notice in these opening verses something here that is, is critical to this entire book. You remember for uh, our, our theme, our title of this series, uh, we've taken the phrase tearing down uh, strongholds taken from chapter 10 and verse 4. Well, here, as you look in these opening verses of chapter 4, you can see Paul uh, telling you a little bit about his methodology in tearing down those strongholds. Or more, more precisely, he's telling you what he doesn't do to try to uh, take God's word and apply it to the Corinthian church's situation. When he says, we've renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways, we're not going to practice cunning, we're not going to tamper with God's word, these are the things that he's going to avoid so that God's word can go forward into the world, addressing the sins of believers and the, world, and the fallen world itself, so that God is glorified and the strongholds are torn down by the power of God and not by the, the fickle and inadequate power of man. But let's get to, uh, I've, I've taken my, my, that's the general theme of this, the specific theme I'm taking my title of this message from comes from what is undoubtedly a very familiar verse to you in chapter four, and that's verse seven, where we have this treasure in jars of clay. I've called this message treasure in clay pots. Some of you have probably done pottery in your time. Maybe it was a, as a kids in school and they maybe had a little pottery project in some sort of shop thing or whatever. And we have, we have some of those kind of little clay pieces that our kids or relatives did for us, still stashed around the house in various places. And they're they're uh, treasured possessions on our part. But have you ever been to a... Ever been to a pottery shop and watched how it works? And watched this, this marvelous piece, a, a vase or a bowl or something else, take shape under the hands of the potter as this lump of clay spinning around ends up into this uh, beautiful, beautiful piece. Well, as I'm sure you all know, it doesn't stop there, right? I mean, they, they don't just shape it all and go, okay, here, throw some water in it, cook some stuff in it, do something else. Is it useful at that point? It is not, right? It has to be fired. It has to be put under great heat. And, and only when that is done and it's hardened and glazed can it really be completely useful. And uh, that seems like a, a rather drastic and unfeeling thing to do to a perfectly unsuspecting lump of clay. But in order to make it useful, uh, those things have to be done. Now, the next, this chapter and the next one um, are a bit of a challenge. 
for me, and that is because Paul is primarily speaking of himself and other apostles, those in authority in these next two chapters, and their particular role as those who are interceding, as ambassadors, as the preachers, as the proclaimers. And it can be very easy for um, everyone else to just go, well, that doesn't really apply to me, that's just the pastor, and I don't really have to worry about it. There's only one problem with that approach. You can't get out of it that easily. And that is because the, our, our Lord has raised up for himself a kingdom of priests. And we're all called upon to declare his glories among the nations, his wonders among all peoples, because the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. And while he has certainly called some to a more um, pointed or focused role within the church of preaching and teaching and all of that sort of thing, um, and as well as evangelists in the world, specific callings and giftings for that sort of thing, he's placed each of us within our families, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces, wherever it happens to be, as those who have been, as I trust, redeemed, changed by the grace and mercy of God, who have been given minds and, and, minds, uh, and, and tongues and uh, a connection between the two so that intelligent speech comes forth from them and particularly declaring the glories of God to others. So all of us can take away uh, some direct application to our own hearts about the ministry of the gospel. Certainly what uh, things here are going to be specifically related to Paul in his position as a minister, as an apostle of the gospel, standing before congregation, before God's people as God's representative and there are going to be things that come upon him in that role that have a tremendous impact upon the rest of the church. And that, that comes with the territory. But it is also true that each of us in our various realms stand as God's representative and need to be faithful in doing so. And when you do, whether it's you as a parent to your children or you as a, a fellow worker to those in your workplace or wherever it happens to be, it can be easy to lose heart, become very discouraging when people don't listen to you, <laughs> when they don't pay attention to what you have to say or outright disrespect you, or uh, even worse, depending on the situation. Certainly in many places around the world, it goes far beyond just some verbal insult or whatever. It can have actual physical consequences for both property and life. You know, I think of the prophet Jeremiah who was told right from the get-go, Jeremiah, you need to go and you need to preach to them and don't be discouraged when you look at their faces because I'm speaking to you. If you, if you chicken out in front of them, he said to Jeremiah, that's the pine translation, um, if you chicken out in, in their presence, I'm going to confound you before them. If you think you're going to look like a fool talking, wait, wait till you don't. Jeremiah, oh, and by the way, they're not going to listen to you. How's that for marching orders? Words of encouragement from the Lord himself to his servant, Jeremiah. You know, as I studied that years and years ago, it occurred to me at that time that just because the Lord calls us to testify does not mean that 
he is guaranteeing that anyone will listen. And in fact, or to, to the point of turning from their sins and becoming saved. He specifically told Jeremiah, I am not sending you so that they will be delivered. I'm sending them to you so that they will be sealed in their condemnation and their rebellion. That they will have no excuse whatsoever for their rebellion. They're not going to listen. I'm determined to judge them for their sin, which is what he did. So sometimes he sends us into a place to speak the word so that it's clear that there's no excuse. God has spoken through his servant. If someone didn't listen, it's on their heads. But nonetheless, uh, Jeremiah was not called the weeping prophet for no reason. It'd be very easy to be discouraged and to lose heart. So I'm thankful that this passage begins with Paul saying, We've got this ministry. It's by the mercy of God. And because of that, because we're rooted in God's power and God's word, we do not lose heart. And then he goes on to explain why, uh, all the reasons why we should not. So when we look at the first six verses then, remember that when you preach the gospel, whether you as a preacher or you as simply and I, it's not really simple but in terms of you know without a lot of fanfare or whatever else you don't have a title or something else but you're declaring God's word you know that word that you're speaking is veiled to those who are perishing it takes the work of God to open their hearts and life to lift that veil remember from the prior chapter that when Christ is preached the veil is taken away it's through that preaching of of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the Lord takes the veil away in his good pleasure, in his good time. And if he doesn't, um, you know, think about when uh, Jesus was preaching and he was preaching in parables. And do you remember the disciples asking him, why are you preaching in parables? And, and I have no doubt in their minds, they were basically thinking, you know, if you just spoke right out clearly, they'd probably understand it better. And in fact, they contrasted with what he was doing among the population, the general population, and how he spoke to them. With them, you speak parables, but with us, you speak plainly. And Jesus said, it is not for them to know. That is why I'm speaking in parables, because they are, their hearts are darkened because of their rebellion, and I'm speaking to them in parables to, so that they will continue in that condition because they've been condemned by the Lord. Not to understand. As, as a general rule, obviously, there were people that, that did believe by God's grace. But the Lord says, yeah, I'm speaking in parables so that they don't understand, which actually fulfills what was spoken of in the prophets, where the, Joel, from among, other case, among others, said, they're not going to understand because I'm going to speak to them in dark figures, mysterious figures, because of their sin and rebellion until such time as the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, and then revival will take place. So, remember that the gospel that you preach is veiled to the perishing, and that, now, true, true. Um, you can be a contributor to the veil if you're not careful. So you always need to examine what you're saying and make sure that it truly is God's word and not your own, that you're not obscuring the truth because of your wisdom and man's wisdom that you're throwing in there. Um, or whatever. But as you faithfully preach God's word, don't lose heart. You have a ministry of truth. 
It's a truth that we see there that, first of all, you've experienced it personally. Paul says, we're not losing heart. We've renounced these things. We're We're not going to practice all these underhanded ways with God's word, but by stating the truth, we'll commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. These are things that I know. These are things that I've practiced. These are things that I've experienced. And therefore, I can honestly declare that to someone else. Ever, ever, um, I remember, you ever tried to sell something to someone that you haven't used yourself? Oh, man. I did a year's stint as an insurance salesman when I, a year was all I could take. I just you know, couldn't stand it. Um, but uh, our, one of the things that the insurance company that I worked for insisted upon is that we had to actually purchase some of their products, some of their insurance vehicles, so that when people asked us, well, have you used it? It's like, uh, no, uh, <laughs> no, I really don't have anything here, but you really should. How, how good a sales pitch would that be? Right? It's not going to work. If you're in Christ, you've experienced this truth personally. You know, people can come to you and say, I don't believe it, I don't believe it, I don't believe it. Whether you're talking about anything, right? Um, you know, what kind of car you drive, what supplements you take, uh, what exercises you do, uh, where you went to vacation, anything else. Um, if They may come back and go, ah, it's not that great, da 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 blah, 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 it's not so good, I don't believe it, blah, blah, blah. And yet in your heart, you go, oh, I'm sorry you don't see it that way, but I've experienced it. I know it. I'm not discouraged. I'm not going to go back and second guess something that I know by experience is true. And it's the essential principle here. Because you've experienced this truth, don't be discouraged. And, and it's verses 5 and 6 also say the same, develop that thought. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as servant for, servants for Jesus' sake. It's a wonderful verse that could guide all of us in our understanding of what we are and who we are to be as witnesses. But it's a recognition of, of the experience of God's ordination upon us, or God's hand upon us as his servants, to faithfully proclaim what he said. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts. There's that experience. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. To reflect the light of Jesus Christ that is there because we truly uh, have experienced the new birth. So you have uh, experienced this truth, and therefore, there's no need for any deception. There's no need for any tricks, right? Paul has said, we're not going to go there. We're not going to try to trick you anything, twist your arm, tamper with God's word. There's no need for deceit. It's an open statement of the truth. Why? Because your life should be a testimony of God's grace that validates what comes out of your mouth. So don't lose heart. You have a ministry of truth that has worked a change in you by God's grace. The results of what happens with others, that's God's business. But you can walk forward with being being encouraged that this word that you're preaching is true. Secondly, 
remember that it is the adversary who controls their minds. The adversary is the real enemy. So don't lose heart when you witness to others and they reject you. Remember the context that we're talking about here. The Apostle Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church, a large number of the members of which turned their backs on him, berated him, belittled him, despised him, rebelled against everything that he had to say. Now, if someone does that to you, would you not feel some inclination maybe to think that you were the victim here? And that uh, they were treating you, that, that somehow they were treating you like the enemy. It can be really discouraging. And yet, remember who the real enemy is. As witnesses, dear friends, uh, it's not about us. It's about this tearing down of strongholds that Satan has erected in the hearts of people to resist the truth of God. And he's the enemy. You know, um, it can be so discouraging when we just think that, well, it's, be, it's between me and this person. I've got, I'm, I'm working with this guy and he is such a, re a rebel. He is so hardened against the gospel. And it, it can be, it almost begins to feel in our own minds like it's adversarial between me and him. But really, it's between me and the adversary fighting for the soul of that individual. And actually, ultimately, it's between God and the adversary uh, fighting for the soul of that individual. So... Remember that it's, it's the adversary that controls their minds. In 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 18, I think you're all familiar with the verse, uh, the, uh, Paul's statement that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, and verse 8, Peter exhorts us, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You all know that verse, I'm sure. It's the adversary that's the real enemy. So we see that here. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And that brings me to the, the third point of this veiling that the perishing experience. Again, it can be so frustrating. You know, you, you rack your mind and think, I can't say this any more clearly, any more simply, any more uh, uh, just point blank. How can anybody not understand this? Well, they can't understand it because they're blind, spiritually blind. Blinded by the adversary, but also blinded by the willfulness of their own hearts. And blindness always leads to unbelief. Okay? Isaiah 44, verse 18 says, They do not know nor understand, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and he is referring to the Lord in this case, so that they cannot see their hearts so that they cannot understand. 
This just sounds like this terrible thing that God's not letting them understand. Yep, look at Romans chapter 1. He reprobates those who are so hardened and, and uh, steeled against him in their hearts that they refuse to pay any attention to all the obvious signs around that there is a God, a God to whom they are accountable, and yet they turn him into the image of birds and beasts and creeping things and pervert everything in life just so that they don't have to obey him and their hearts and minds are blinded and they're sealed in their sin. Now that doesn't mean, let me be real swift to say this. It doesn't mean when you see those who are in that condition, who are hardened against the gospel, who refuse to listen, who cannot see that you go, oh well, that's too bad. Oh well, it doesn't matter. Of course it matters. Um, even though the Lord works to uh, uphold his glory and his justice, he doesn't delight in the death of the wicked, and neither should we. We can weep with Jeremiah over the state of God's people. We could weep with Paul. We could weep with Christ, who looked at the lost of sheep of Israel, and knowing that they had blinded themselves to the truth that was smack dab in front of them. And so it's not a cause for flippancy or carelessness on their part, but just it, it, it is, there is an admonition here not to be discouraged in the work that we're doing so that to the point that we give up and just go, well, what's, what is the point? But to keep on doing what we need to do. Paul demonstrated that in his work with the Corinthian church, didn't he? He was steadfast on their part, even though they were heavy-duty rebellion against him. And, uh, of course, rejoiced when they repented. The fact is, is that I would say most, in over the big scheme of things, um, at least at the moment, perhaps, will reject the word that you deliver. And I take that, not in a pessimistic kind of way, um, obviously, the number of the redeemed is going to be innumerable to us. But nonetheless, broad is the way that leads to destruction is there. Many there be that find it. Uh, but as we were reminded this, this, this morning about God's word and the uh, theme verse uh, that, uh, of the Gideons, right, that God's word will not fail to accomplish the purpose for which he sends it out. And that purpose is both deliverance and reprobation. All right? So he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So the gospel you preach is veiled to the perishing. And there's another thing. So that sounds, okay, well, there's one strike against us. How's this going to happen? How's this going to work? Okay, well, so now we're reminded that not only is it veiled to the perishing, but the gospel is delivered in really frail vessels. This is counterproductive, to, uh, counterintuitive to everything that we would think, right? Again, in sales, oh, when I, when I did sales, I loved it when somebody, when somebody said, I have just been waiting for someone to come and, uh, and sell me some insurance. You know what? Uh, 
I was, I'd say I was delighted in it. I was delighted in my dreams of that ever happening. It never did. All right? It never did. And I certainly felt inadequate. I mean, I had hardly entered training. They sent me out, you know, door to door, making cold, I hate cold calls. Oh, making cold calls. People go, well, I have all I need. And I'd kind of go, I'd say, what do you have? Da, da, da. Well, it does sound like you have all you need. Well, have a good day. <laughs> my, my boss hated that when I do that. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I just wasn't cut out for it. Um, I did sell some stuff. That's fine. Um, but I, there's a reason uh, that my wife was thankful I stopped doing it after a year because I wasn't making any money, so to speak. But when you think about our frailty and our inability and our, our, our challenges that we have, um, we can think, oh, if only I were like Apollos, you know, could just go in and really wow them with my rhetoric. Wouldn't that be awesome? Yes, it would. That would be great. And I'm glad that the Lord equipped some people to do that. He doesn't equip all of us to do that. And, and uh, for some, uh, it's a real struggle. I, re I remember years ago when I was teaching speech at Bob Jones University and I had a young man in my speech class. It was a freshman speech. He was a Bible major. And um, I do not remember his name, um, thankfully. So, And I don't know who might this be seeing this or watching this. Um, this does bear resemblance to someone who's actual, but I don't remember his name and don't know where he is and don't know anything about it. But I remember this guy as a freshman speech student could not talk his way out of a wet paper bag. It was he really struggled to put two thoughts together that were connected and without stumbling all over himself. And it was just, it was hard to watch. It was hard to sit through. He really struggled. And yet he was like, oh, I'm called to preach. And I'm like, okay. And um, he kept at it and he kept at it. And um, with not a whole lot of improvement through the semester, maybe a little bit. And I took him aside one time and suggested to him in my infinite wisdom that uh, maybe he ought to think about a different way to serve the Lord than in a pulpit. That there's lots of ways to serve the Lord in his church full-time without actually being a preacher or teacher. You just don't have the gifts for this. And, and, and honestly, he didn't have the gifts for this. Didn't have it at all. Well, I made him mad. <laughs> he was... He was furious with me. He, was, he would have a hard time talking with me the rest of the semester. But he, he was bound and determined to show me that I was wrong. Which, okay. So he worked, he, he worked really, really hard. Um, then the next year, his sophomore year, I ran into him again. You know, every year they had a preacher boys conference there. Or a, a competition, put it that way. And um, everybody would preach and they'd... Uh, anyway... Uh, it, was an, it was an exercise to put you under pressure and so on. And um, I happened to be sitting on a class where he was one of the guys who was preaching. He was still at it, and it, it was pretty bad. It just it was like, oof. Okay, but it was better than it was. Better than it was uh, when he was in my class. Fast forward a couple years later, I ran into him again. And uh, he was still a Bible major. He was working at some church, and um, I understand that he had, w was actually doing pretty well. I don't think he was setting the world on fire with his sermons, but nonetheless, 
he was serving the Lord faithfully. And then a few years later, found out that he was pastoring a church somewhere. And, you know, there's a body of people out there that heard him preach and said, you know what, this man can minister to God's word to us um, so that we can understand it and receive it and live according to it. And I rejoiced in that. Did he have the gifts? No. But God equipped him for the time and what he needed to do and used him. You know, all of that to say this. We're frail vessels. Sometimes our brains don't work real well. Sometimes our tongues don't work real well. Sometimes our bodies don't work real well. And yet the Lord delights to show his strength and power through the weak things and the despised things of the world. Amen. Aren't you glad? So don't lose heart. When people look at you and despise you and think you're fools, no, the power to save is from God. So don't lose heart. It's not about what a great vessel you are. It's about what a great God he is. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says in verse 5, Your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13, a familiar passage to all of us, it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So don't lose heart. The power behind your witness, the power behind your testimony. Yeah, it's in clay pots. Easily broken. Not very glamorous. But his power will save those whom he calls without fail. So don't lose heart. Now, as a clay pot, probably most of you have some clay pots around your place. Unless you are like really, really careful with them. Well, over time, they start getting chipped, a little banged up, the glazing gets knocked off here or there. This gets a sharp edge, whatever, here and there. We keep them around. They're still useful, but they start looking a little beaten up, and yet they're still useful. Verses 8 through 12, Paul speaks of the tribulation that has come his way. And noting that as he has experienced that tribulation, it's, well, sure, it's nobody in their right mind wants to suffer. And yet, at the same time, knowing that the suffering that he has experienced has been a blessing to them, has been a means of God strengthening and encouraging the flock, he's not discouraged, he's not losing heart. Tribulation for him meant deliverance for the flock. And so it is with you. There's nothing like demonstrating the reality of your faith when you live it through trial. And people know it. It's, it's great to say, oh yeah. And that, that's one reason why the prosperity gospel is such a crock. You know, just believe in God and everything's going to be fine. It's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. Everything's perfect. Now you got Jesus. It's a lie. Jesus said, you think I suffered? You're going to suffer. But the Lord uses his, just as he uses his suffering servant, the Lord Jesus, to deliver his people. So the under-shepherds, the under-servants, uh, all, all of us, as we as we live out our faith, even through trial and difficulty and suffering, that speaks far louder to the reality of the grace of God and the power of God than if we say, I believe in Jesus when everything is going well. 
The Lord often ordains suffering in your life so that those for whom you're responsible, whether it's a congregation, whether it's friends, whether it's your children, or whatever, that suffering helps them come to grips with their own commitment and their own faith in a way that they wouldn't if they didn't see you living your faith through that time of grief and sorrow. And look at the sorrow that Paul is speaking of. Affliction, perplex, perplexity, persecution, being struck down, summarized in carrying about in the body the death of Jesus so the life of Jesus may be manifested. The, the evidence of the, the death of Christ having changed us will show forth in a light and a life that in spite of everything that's going on is undefeated because Christ is undefeated. So don't lose heart when you come under trial and tribulation and affliction. The Lord was using it to be a blessing to others as you testify of him. Not only that, don't lose heart, but look at verses 13 and 14 where we have another reason for encouragement because even as there is deliverance for the flock, you know that your own heart, your own deliverance is secure in the Savior himself. So verse 13 says, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, this is from Psalm 116, I believe and so I spoke. And by the way, uh, the way that it's said here, if you go to Psalm 116 and look at verse 10, the whole verse says, I believed uh, and so I spoke, or as the ESV has it, even when I spoke, I am afflicted. The, the emphasis of that verse is, in spite of affliction, in spite of difficulty, I believed, and so I spoke to that belief. Well, knowing that your deliverance is secure in your risen Savior is a marvelous thing. How has that confidence come about? Verse 14, because he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his, into his presence. Paul was absolutely certain that his heart, his life was safe with the Savior. And the faith that you share with the apostles and the prophets should compel you to speak, even out of affliction, even out of trial, to the power of God to redeem. Charles Hobbes said at this verse, the faith of David made him proclaim the fidelity and goodness of God. You think about how many psalms uh, that, uh, not just Psalm 116, but other psalms where David is crying out of incredible affliction and trial and tribulation and fear of death and yet ends up praising God. It's not that the trials went away, uh, but uh, he recognized that God hadn't gone anywhere either. The foundation of your faith is, is in your resurrected Savior. You see that in verse 14. Rome, Paul says in Romans 8, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit. So don't lose heart. Your own deliverance is secure because Christ defeated the death and the enemy that defeats all of us. As he rose again from the dead. 
And the end of all of that, the end of verse 14 there tells us, is it all comes into eternal life in the presence of Christ with all the saints to whom you've ministered. And what it, that's, what we, that's what we rejoice in, looking forward to. So we don't get discouraged. Now rapidly, uh, let me look at the last a few verses of this. The gospel you preach, while it's been veiled to the perishing, it's delivered in jars of clay, frail vessels, and yet, uh, again, though it's counterintuitive to, to us, Somehow, in the providence of God, that gospel, delivered in that way, in those conditions, works for eternity. And again, accomplishes everything that the Lord sent it out to do. And we see that in verses 15 through 18. It's all for your sake, Paul says, so that his grace extends to more and more people it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. I'm not a big John Piper fan, but I do like his book, uh, Let the Nations Be Glad. It's a, a great little book on, on missions, why missions, and some uh, thoughts about missions. But I particularly love it for one statement that is in the prologue of it, the foreword of it, where he says, why are, why are missions necessary? Or why do we have missions? It's because there's no worship of God in the world. That's why. We go out to uh, call creation to glorify its creator and, uh, and through the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we go out to, to work not just for time, but for eternity. And so don't lose heart. God is glorified. As people increase in their thanksgiving and their praise, it, God is glorified. Don't lose heart. The psalmist says in Psalm 40, he brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay. He set my feet on a rock, establishing my steps. He's put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many shall see it and fear and trust in the Lord. God is working for eternity. And he makes everything beautiful in his time. So do not lose heart. Also, don't lose heart because the, the gospel is not just doing stuff in others. It continues to have a ministry to you. You know, just because you get saved, the gospel doesn't cease to have any import in your life, right? It, because salvation is far more than just a moment in time. It's about a reclamation of everything, sanctification unto glory. And the power of the gospel continues that on. So Paul says there in verses 16, we're not losing heart. He re re repeats that. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed. For this light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that's beyond all comparison. So don't lose heart. The gospel is working glory in you, even as you minister to others. He gives you power. So don't be discouraged. My wife's favorite verses are from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 29 through 31. We read there, he gives power to the weak and to those that have no might. He increases strength. 
They that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The Lord continues to minister to you, so don't lose heart. And finally, as we see in verse 18, don't lose heart. Because even though at any given point in time, your labors may seem to be fruitless, they work eternal results because of the power of God and his word. We don't look at the things that are seen. The things that are seen are transient. They pass away. We're looking for eternal, heavenly things. I think I've told the story before of a young lady that uh, my wife and I had some interaction with many, many years ago when we were traveling for the university. And uh, this young lady took exception to uh, some things that I was saying in a, in a message that started off the week and then she took a strong exception to it. Um, Basically, I was preaching from Psalm 19 and commented that the word of God, the word of the Lord rejoices the heart and made the statement that if you love the Lord, you're going to love to do what he wants you to do. You're going to love to walk in obedience. It'll make you happy. And she uh, uh, called me up and said, I, I disagree with that sermon. And uh, we had a two-hour conversation with her. She argued with me that because you know, she'd made a confession of faith, and she'd walked down an aisle, she'd made a decision, and all of that, and she was miserable because she had to give up all the stuff she used to like to do. And I told her, I said, I'm not the Holy Spirit, I don't know your heart, but from what you just told me, I'd say you're not really a Christian. It certainly ought to be examined. Well, that, that made her even angrier. Go figure. Um, anyway, she, we were finally talking again by the end of the week, but she really struggled with that. You know, she heard the gospel. She, she had a certain idea of what she thought it should be. It, it wasn't biblical. She struggled against it. By the end of that week, she was still fighting against that, even though she was friendlier. She was still fighting against the idea that she had to really surrender to the Lord and creator of all. And a couple of years later, ran into another a student that we'd met at that school, another student, who was saying, hey, did you hear about so-and-so? I was like, no. She really got saved. Her whole life changed. Her whole demeanor changed. She became this vibrant, uh, loving, excited. I mean, she was a sullen kind of, kind of person. Everything changed for her when she truly came to Christ. You know, at times, I, I would have, I, I, Karen can attest, we walked away from that week with our hearts as heavy for that young lady. And what would she ever repent? Would she ever turn to Christ, really? Or would it always be only on her own terms? And yet, you know, some plants, some water, God gives the increase. A couple years down the road, wow, things changed. And sometimes you don't get to hear that, right? You don't get to know the end result. Uh, in this case, praise God, I, we were able to, to know something about her. But the Lord's the one who works through time and eternity, not us. We just do our thing now. Knowing that all of this is working for eternity. And the gospel that you proclaim, in whatever capacity, is a great treasure. It's hidden from those who are in, rebe who are in rebellion against God. It's often delivered in the midst of trial and testing through our frailty. 
right? But its work is glorious and it's eternal in those whom God has called. So do not lose heart. God has committed this vessel, this treasure to vessels of clay so that he might bring you and those to whom you preach might bring you forth as gold. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the privilege of your service. Lord, we are just clay pots, frail and weak. But Lord, you are not frail and weak, and your gospel is powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It will accomplish your purposes. And so, Lord, help us not to be discouraged, but to be faithful in our witness as we deliver this treasure that you have entrusted to us. In Christ's name we pray.